and welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode three, King of the Hill from 1993. I'm Tobin Addington. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and this is the third episode and three very, very, very different movies from Soderbergh. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's true. As we've said in the past, this is going to be an eclectic uh, podcast. This is a lot of different kind of films from him, and he does not waste any time in trying out new things. Yeah, and I had not seen this movie before. This is one of the few Soderbergh films that I completely uh, had no idea what what to expect whatsoever. And he's not keeping it easy for himself either, because it's another it's a period piece. You know, the last one was a period piece, but this is like I feel like a real period piece and it's like based on a book or a memoir and it's got kids in it so it's like three it's like a triple decker challenge i felt it's really interesting how just in his third movie how he would do this yeah so sex lies was an original script that he wrote and made and then kafka was like a script that he was given or found or whatever that he made and this one is a script that he wrote that he adapted from a memoir so not only is it three different types of films but it's three different sort of paper to screen things, uh, transitions, moves, whatever. Yeah, you know, the other thing is that this is in some ways a challenge because it's a more traditional film. I mean, his clinical stamp was all over the first two movies. And this this is a, a more of a sort of heart on its sleeve kind of movie. This is, it's not, not sentimental, but, you know, we're dealing with a kid growing up in the depression and, you know, some, some terrible things happen to and around this kid. And we're sort of, I think we're meant to feel them more directly than maybe we were meant to feel things in, in the first two movies. That That's my impression anyway. I would agree with that. And I think that the one thing that they all do have in common, the first three movies, is that they're all centered around protagonists that kind of feel a little bit out of place with the world, that they're all sort of separate, that it, they're kind of like the world doesn't get them. Well, you're talking about James Spader or Kafka or the kid in this movie who's really, really good for a kid actor. They're all sort of not in their own world, but sort of in a bubble and kind of living their own lives and not necessarily living the life that the world around them wants to live. Or wants them to live. Yeah, I, I would think so too. Yeah, and this character especially is, I feel like he's facing the most adversity out of the three, and he's the youngest. This little kid growing up in the 30s, like alone, basically. To go on that journey, I was very intrigued by it. I was sort of with the movie. And the kid is great too. I don't know if you guys recognize him when he grew up at all, but I've, he was in Hackers, he was in Swim Fan. He, he's, he's a working actor. He's been doing a lot of stuff um so i thought that was funny too but yeah this movie definitely feels more like a studio film to me like it's got like more of that grandeur to it it feels a little safer than the previous two movies even though it's about the depression i don't really feel like he attacked it from that angle it's very pretty it's not very gritty but it's still entertaining on on multiple levels and i don't feel like even though i never knew about this movie and i never heard about it and things about it like i don't feel like it's a bad movie it's not his best out of the three but i also don't feel like he's fumbled here so he's still three movies in i feel like he's got a good trio here of, of movies under him well, I don't think this is his best of the three. I think far and away, Sex Lies is the best. But I really like this movie because I love coming of age, and this is a coming of age movie. And I think 
two reasons why it might not feel gritty, like you said, is number one, the Criterion restoration of this is gorgeous. Like, it's unbelievably good looking. And what's even crazier is to watch the trailer on the Criterion Blu-ray for the film, and like it's in this like really grainy, low-res like YouTube quality, and it's like the colors are all different and everything. It just feels so different from the film that you just watched. Uh, number two, the other reason I think it doesn't feel necessarily as gritty or like Depression era e. It's because he said in interviews that the guy who wrote this memoir that this movie is based on, it was sort of written from a place, and and Soderbergh made this movie from a place that, like, his family never had it good. And so the Depression didn't necessarily hit them as hard as it hit other people. So there wasn't, like, a real sense of, like, pessimism there just because they never had money. So the fact that, like, other people around them didn't have money, it wasn't as big of a deal. And the other thing was that apparently this is right when, I think, Roosevelt took office or something, and jobs were, like, it wasn't, like, as Depression-y as other parts of the Depression would be. But it, it is important to note that this is that that's the time period this is from, and it's reflected on screen. Yes, in fact, I was describing to my five-year-old the movie I was going to come down and talk to you guys about today, and the scene that I used to sort of describe this to him was there's a point in the movie where the Jesse Bradford character, the kid, is going to make dinner for him and his father, and he takes ketchup and like dumps it into a bowl and adds water and stirs it up and they call it soup. Yep. And that that really brings home you know the little there are little details like that throughout the movie that you know really make it very clear the the kinds of workarounds you know the hacks that people had in order to just you know get enough calories in their bodies to sort of make it through another day and the movie does a nice job in doing that kind of stuff without comment you have to sort of look is that what he's doing oh my gosh that's what he's doing like nobody makes a a big deal out of it his dad even says something like this is good soup like (laughs) he compliments the soup which is the saddest thing so sad so so i think that there's you know the movie handles that stuff really well. And, and another thing that's the advantage that they have in making it about a kid is that in some ways the kid is not going to know much different than the world as it is around him. You know, it's, this isn't a sob story about the depression. This is a kid who's having to survive like kids always kind of have to survive. It's just that he's up against things that he may not even know at the time are so so sort of heavily stacked against him. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point because I feel like that could also explain why it's not so dark, right? Like why there's sort of like this amber, nostalgic vibe going on because for the most part, I guess he is just trying to remember the best parts and <laughs> the bad things are definitely here. You know, his, his brother gets sent away, his mom has consumption, his neighbor's going to kill himself. Like there's dark moments and they don't shy away from them. But yeah, for the most part, I feel like it could work if you think about it as this is seen through Aaron's eyes at the time and he is this, you know, what, 11, 12 year old kid. So for the most part, I guess his life hasn't had the reference for the darkness yet so much. Like, this is where I feel he's getting that for the rest of his life, right? Like, all these moments we see on screen during this time in the hotel seem to be very influential because a lot of the worst things seem to have happened here and readied him for whatever else he had to face after the movie ends. And what's also kind of interesting about him experiencing these things beyond his ears is that Soderbergh presents them in a way that maybe I wasn't looking for, maybe I was just engrossed in other things, but the first time he goes across the hallway and 
sees the man with the prostitute, it's not necessarily immediately apparent what the relationship is there. And I think maybe it's just because I was looking for other things, but I also feel like we're in the kid's eyes and he doesn't understand what's going on. Like, he knows something's happening over here, but he doesn't necessarily know the nature of their relationship. And I like the way that that's presented through his eyes, through this sort of inexperienced, sort of naive kid seeing this world and kind of living in a grittier world than he really should have to. That's just because that's the world that is. Yeah, it's a great point. It's also a thing that then connects back to what you'd started with, that the idea that all of the protagonists in these first three Soderbergh movies are people who are sort of disconnected from the world around them. Because one of the things that that does in all three cases is it allows then the movie to see the world through their eyes and sort of how screwed up the world is in, in so many ways. You know, that, that when you, if you really come down to it in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, is, is James Spader more psychologically messed up than, than she is at the beginning with, with her sort of OCD, you know? Is the world as crazy uh, as, he, as he thinks it is, maybe? Uh, and same with, the, with Kafka, right? Like, he's, that's a messed up world he's in. <laughs> And, and because he's disconnected from it, it allows us to see it from a, a little bit more of a remove. And then the same thing is, is true for this movie, whether or not, you know, the kid is distant, he's a kid. And that, that distances him from the adult world. This is something that this whole movie, a, a, a couple times I felt this, to sort of change gears for a second. Mike, did you get a sense that, like, if Shia was a couple years <laughs> older, he would have played this kid? That's hilarious, because I was thinking Battle of Shaker Heights at one point. Yeah, I wrote that down. I was thinking A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. Okay. Because it's a hot summer day. And I was also, when they go golfing later, I was like, oh, greatest game ever played. You know, little caddy right there. And so it was weird that, like, two different times, and then again, third, you know, Battle of Shaker Heights, that sort of thing, too, where I guess it's the haves and the have-nots, that we collectively had three different Shia movies out of, like, 30 that apply to this. And, like, Shia was born in 86, so he would have been seven here. So he's a little bit young to play the kid, but, like... yeah. I also feel like what we saw from him as a young actor, he could have done something close to as good as this. I mean, this kid is great, but like, you know, having seen all Shia's movies, I think he would have nailed this lead part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think what it got me for Shaker Heights was like, doesn't he sort of like a liar in that? And then this kid too, throughout the movie, sort of lie and cover up his real life and how poor he was and stuff. So yeah, it's totally getting uh, Shia LaBeouf vibe off of this. That's so funny. I can't believe that you picked up on that too. So speaking of how he's a liar, I was reading in the interview that I read that this is based on the memoir, and the guy who wrote the memoir was on set with him and talked to Soderbergh leading up to the production and made sure that people knew backstories, and he told him stories that like weren't in the book, and Soderbergh went through the book three times, because somebody told him to, to go through it three times, like underline things in different color pens each time, and whatever's underlined three times, that's the stuff you can't leave out. And so I think this works as an adaptation better than a lot of things that we've seen, because he's able to sort of take creative liberties with it that he's able to fill in the gaps and stuff like the lies, like talking about how he's friends with Charles Lindbergh or whatever. Apparently that's not in the book. That was something that he just made up to sort of characterize the kid in a way that is consistent with the stuff that he left out of the book. And I think that this is a movie that works in terms of turning something from one medium to another better than a lot of other things that we've covered on Cage Club and Keanu Club and all his movies and stuff, because Soderbergh is able to capture what I can imagine is the tone of the book and not necessarily tell this guy's childhood beat for beat as it really happened. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. Like we've watched enough adaptation, enough bad adaptations for Cage and Keanu. Like this one doesn't even feel like it's you know from a book or anything. It just, it just kind of feels like Avalon or something, right? Like, and that was an adaptation too. So I mean, it just feels more like its own thing than it was based off something for me. You know, just knowing what movies based off books can feel like. Like, they can feel like they stumble and they're a, they're tonally a mess. Like, this actually keeps its groove the entire time. Um, and, yeah, it's great that it had the actual guy was there and was like, yeah, change things, do things. Like, just keep the spirit. Um, I watched some of the behind the scenes on the Criterion disc. There's a interview with the guy, and, and it's really interesting. You know, he's talking about his birds and everything. But even Soderbergh said the character across the hall that Spalding Gray plays. He's an amalgam of people because there's just not time to spend with everybody in the hotel. That would be a great movie, but that's not the movie. Like, who's in every room of this hotel? So you sort of have to take those liberties, and I agree. Those make for the best adaptations. We've talked about this before with Soderbergh, that, that he sort of speaks film. You know, he sort of lives and breathes cinematic terms, or seems to anyway. And And so it's not really a surprise, maybe, that this, you know, first adaptation directly from another, from previous work is not going to feel very much like an adaptation, that he's going to turn it into a more purely cinematic experience. And I think in a lot of ways he succeeds. I think, I think you know, you guys have identified a bunch of coming-of-age movies that this sort of feels in the lineage of. I would add uh, there's a, a Fellini movie called Amarcord, um, that sort of semi-autobiographical tale of his growing up in the in his village in Italy, and and there's it has some of the similar kind of things of a, an adult world seen through a kid's eyes and not fully understood. There's also a, sort of a 400 blows quality to this movie in terms of a, of a protagonist who's young and not sort of pre-adolescent and disconnected from the world and abandoned by his family, either on purpose or sort of by choice. Anyway, the movie seems to have as much to do with other great coming-of-age movies as it does with uh, the source material. I say that not having read it, but that's sort of the impression that one gets from watching the movie. You fit in right here at home on the Cage Club Podcast Network because we rarely read the source material. We just make <laughs> assumptions and take yeah. guesses and just belittle the adaptations. Aside from, like, Wild at Heart, I don't know... I mean, we're really batting a very low percentage, so... You know, we, we're just gonna keep we're gonna keep on plugging away at just guessing what the source material is like. Yeah, I feel like the Cage Club book club is a whole other podcast down the line one day. Maybe <laughs> we'll see if we get there. Well, I'm it's, I'm actually teaching a college class right now on adaptation, and we're we're reading a bunch of books and articles that have been turned into movies, and then watching the movies and sort of trying to figure out how things were, were adapted. And this is nothing new to say, but one of the things that in the more successful adaptations. Very often it captures the spirit, the theme, the tone of the source material and then adapts the plot characters um, and sometimes even the setting into more cinematic terms. And that, and that you know, at, at first blush, maybe th- sometimes things seem like they're less faithful when in fact they capture you – know, if you can capture the feeling that one gets from reading the, the book – then you're you're probably making a better movie than if you just sort of take scene to scene and 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 you know cut out two thirds of a book and put the rest of it on the screen. And that's really like all you can do because I mean a book is not a movie because it's a different thing, right? So as long as you take the core essence of it, that's the most important thing. But if anybody who reads a book is going into a movie expecting for it to be like a, a really truly one to one adaptation, unless 
it's like Sin City, which is a different thing altogether, it's just not going to happen. A wink, wink, future podcast director's potential down the road in this would be like the Wachowskis. And like when I read Cloud Atlas, not to get too far off on a tangent, but I read Cloud Atlas, I was like, I don't know how this is ever going to become a movie. And they were able to take that like 500 page segmented six stories that are each told individually from the first half of each and then the back half of each and weave them together in a way that was beautiful. Like, that's not what the book is, but it's the spirit of the book. And it's the way that the book really kind of, if it could be written, maybe would be written in. And so... I'm totally okay. Maybe it's because I like books and movies. I can see that maybe there are people who are more book snobby or whatever who might sort of scoff at lack of faithful adaptations. But if you capture the mood and if you capture what the author wanted to convey and you don't like make just everything up, I think it's totally okay. And I think this especially works really well in terms of giving a sense of what it was like at that time. One of the things that it probably keeps from the book is there's a vaguely episodic quality to the structure of the movie. I made a note as that, you know, early on in the film, as we've alluded to, Aaron's younger brother gets sent away to go stay with his uncle because the family can't afford to keep feeding both kids, basically. You know, things are so dire that they have to send one of the kids away. So our protagonist's brother gets put on a bus and shipped away. And I wrote in my notes, I thought, oh my gosh, what a what a fantastic, amazing, like, vital goal for this kid to get his brother back. Because you can imagine the movie then turning into this movie of Aaron trying to find out ways to get his brother back. And in some ways it is. That is that is behind things uh, that he does in the movie. But like the, like bird, the bird thing, thing yeah. It does not become the focus of the movie. The movie is much more interested in sort of exploring his psychology and his ability to survive, as it would be in, with, in real life with a kid at this time. So I, I did appreciate that the movie was able to maintain some of what I am guessing is the episodic quality of the book and, and yet sort of turn it into uh, enough into sort of cinema that it doesn't but not so far into a movie that it falls into the a lot of cliches of, of this kind of movie so what's really interesting about the brother is the brother's not in the book at all the brother in real life had left like the same thing happened to him but he had left before the book began but Soderbergh was like we need to have him in here because we need to have a connection to the kid so the fact that that is such a palpable real tension and longing and driving factor is just a testament to like Soderbergh's mastery, if you want to call it that, of storytelling. Just because you do feel like that kid's only on screen for 10 minutes, maybe. Yeah, but bad. just like the few scenes that you have with the two kids, like the marble scene or them walking home from school, it's enough to make you be like, oh, that's devastating. And also sets up this domino effect of where everyone in this kid's life leaves. Like, his brother leaves, and then his mother leaves, his father leaves, then Adrian Brody, who I've never liked in anything more than I like him in this. Like, he's so good in this movie. He leaves, and, like, this kid really, like, everybody who's close to him is gone. And that kid, the, the brother that wasn't in the book that Soderbergh added to the movie is sort of the first domino that kicks everything off, and it just, it's wonderful. Yeah, it, at least it really happened. Like, I don't mind that it wasn't in the book. I, you know, I just, at least he really did have that brother, so that's that's grounds for inclusion as far as I care. I, I also think with the brother, like I definitely felt like this movie was going to be about the brothers like throughout this movie, taking care of each other. And in such a small period of time, they are set up so well that when he is sent away, it really did come 
to me to feel like a gut punch and started disorienting me in the way that this kid's going to start becoming more and more disoriented as his life is, you know, ripped into different pieces and then just like thrown into the air and off with the wind. I also feel like as a viewer, I appreciated sort of how busy this movie is in a sense. Like I felt like I was this kid running around all the time trying to stay busy or amuse myself or, you know, get into stuff. He's got Adrian Brody to try and get him a job as a caddy or take care of him. And they're stealing stuff from tenants that were kicked out that's kept in the locker. And then he has the girl across the hall with the epilepsy and, you know, the stuff with the cop, the stuff at school. I mean, there's all this stuff to keep you busy watching. And so that was really interesting, too, that it didn't just dwell on this kid locked in a room in an apartment complex during the 30s because he was poor. Like This kid was out and around and actually saw the world and everything. So all that was conveyed really clearly for me. I love the scene that happens when he goes to the rich kid's house Again, this is a, a Soderbergh sort of allowing the film to comment on, you know, class distinctions and socioeconomic distinctions and the haves and the have-nots in the Depression. And uh, it's it's a beautiful way to do it without without sort of underlining it too much. The kids don't fight about who has more money. It's not like that the kid with money is really conceited and is really a jerk. You know, they're they're just sort of buddies. They're just sort of buddies at school. And and to watch Aaron realize all the things that this kid has, you know, the, the, the rich kid finds out that Aaron likes birds and he has a bird at home. And so he says, Oh, I do too. You want to come see mine? And they walk into the room with like a hundred birds in cages, you know? And, and, and then, and then the kid, the rich kid agrees to sort of give him a breeding pair so that he can also breed some and make some money from it. You know, it's just, I just think that's kind of stuff that little character moment stuff is handled so nicely and deftly uh, that it sort of allows you to realize the situation this kid is in as he's realizing it without sort of drawing a big, big red underline underneath. And that little rich boy is my favorite and least favorite character in the movie because when he gives the the female bird so that Aaron can breed the birds, he says, and I quote, oh, here's a sexy looking dish, and then hands him a female bird. And I was like, this kid is so creepy and weird. Like, it's such a weird, wonderful, little, rich, creepy old creepo kid. But the scene works really well, and it is nice how, you know, he's just like, oh, I just have one for now. Like, he's downplaying it. But yeah, I mean, it's a great scene. So now, one thing that that leads to down the line in the film, and maybe I'm just cynical, but the the birds do breed, and he has four birds, and he brings them to the pet store. And the pet store owner's like, well, they're all girls, can't give you any money. And I'm like, there's, there's no way that they're all girls. Like, that's just, is that the pet store owner kind of screwing him over because it's the depression? Because it, it doesn't feel like the world is really unfair to him at any point in this movie, but that feels explicitly unfair. Like, he's being lied to in that moment. I picked up on that as well. I felt the same thing. Not so much just that it was the depression, but that he's a stupid kid that this guy could take advantage of. I mean, he's not a stupid kid, but he just doesn't know anything about telling the sex of the bird. So the store owner brings in this Asian guy acting like a veterinarian, but who knows who this guy is? They could be running a scam too. So yeah, I definitely had the sense that he was getting taken and it was just another one of those beatings that he got. He didn't even realize that he was taking. And this is one of the great things about the movies. The movie does not tell you for sure. You, you, there, I don't think there is a... I think you could come away from that scene thinking, oh, wow, this kid just has really shitty luck. Or you could come away thinking, oh, this kid just got just got taken. And, and the movie would support 
both those without it without it being too ambiguous or too cute you know it's sort of like my guess is the Aaron grows up and then looks back on that moment and thinks to himself god was i taken was i taken advantage of he wouldn't know it at the time but he might suspect it later and that's how that scene plays to me i just just really well just really well done i think can we go back and talk about two very noteworthy actors in this movie, one of whom we mentioned, Adrian Brody, is great, and the other one, who I didn't notice the first time I saw her, but saw her name in the credits, or I was like skimming online while I was watching, I kept waiting for her, is Katherine Heigl. A couple years before the first thing I'd seen her in previously, which is, I think, Under Siege 2, the stellar She was Steven in Seagal Under Siege 2? Uh, she was. She's, she's Steven Seagal's daughter, I think, Casey Ryback's daughter. She's very young in this. I, I noticed her in that opening scene. Yes, I, when I watched that thing, and we'll get to that other, the, the short film, like that video essay that's on the Criterion thing that you had us watch, Mike, which is great. We'll get to that in a little bit. I saw her again, and then I was like, oh, that makes sense that she's in the classroom. But what was weird was that in my head, because you hear so many like negative stories about Katherine Heigl, about how she's like a diva and people don't want to work with her or whatever, I was expecting her character to be this like prissy little bitch. Like, I have money, I'm going to lord it over you. But she's genuinely like a sweet girl who wants to give this kid a break. And I was like, oh, like that's like, a, even though like there was nothing in the film to give me the impression that this girl was going to be anything but nice, I was still sort of, my expectations were subverted just because of who she would, <laughs> the actress would kind of turn out to be that when she's just like, I can bring anyone to this dinner or even if there maybe wasn't a dinner and she just like tells her parents, hey, this kid has no food. We need to get him food. Like it's just such a nice thing for her to do. I was like, whoa, all right, cool. I got the sense just from that first scene that that character was... I thought she was going to be more prevalent throughout the whole film because she seemed really taken by that essay, the Lindbergh essay that he's starting off the movie with, which is a good essay. It's a nice monologue for the kid, too. He pulls it off really well. But I I definitely felt like she was going to be in the movie more. But yeah, you're right. Like Her role is really interesting. Uh, Is it that I wasn't even sure, did she just want to feed him? Or I felt like she had a genuine crush on him, too which was just adorable and that also was sort of a comment on how children don't see money all the time right like there you know he's got his friend with the bird who just wants to be friends and learn how to play marbles and then there's this girl who also just is just being a a sweet young girl who has a crush on this boy in class like it doesn't matter that he's the poor boy and she's not really taking charity on him per se so that could also i feel like both readings work and are appropriate it's just another one of those moments. Yeah, I think she's totally got a crush on him. I think that this is a this is a case where the you know, there are two girls who have crushes on this kid in this movie. In in my reading, and the kid Aaron is kind of oblivious uh, to both, <laughs> which is you know, a kids at the same age, the girl's going to mature faster, and that's I, I think you can totally read it that way. Her her look to him, you know, it's a it's an innocent crush, it's an early crush. But I think she's like, hey, you know, you're kind of cute. I want to hang out. I, I don't take it as pity. I never took it as pity from her. And she's like, I got to figure out a way to get this kid fed. I, I, I didn't I did, it didn't ever, ever feel that way. And I think that it's one of the <laughs> one of the kind of strengths of the movie of, of, of doing a movie like this where they're pre-adolescent. You know, some of them have crossed that divide and some of them haven't. And, and I think she's crossed it. And I, and I don't think he has yet. So I can see that for her. I do think that the girl down the hall, sort of the reclusive shut-in who has seizures, maybe this is, again, me being cynical. I get the sense that he he knows that she sort of has a crush on him and he's not necessarily into it. I feel like, he, I feel like he's more aware of that situation than he is of Catherine Heigl. I, I definitely feel like he's just wary of it all on just different levels. Also that. She's a little... St- 
scarier you know to to a boy like right like yeah. she's not allowed out like there's there's no telling like what's happening like there could just be more build up in your mind aside from that but that girl ella is like entirely you know she's she's wonderfully sweet and everything and she just wants to dance with him and wishes she owned a cat which he will buy her a cat with the bird money <laughs> which was great too um and and he ends up taking like he ends up witnessing her seizure and so you know I feel like at that point, then he's more relaxed or like he takes that extremely well. And he's like, oh, okay, maybe this is a moment where he can he realizes like he's not the only one that has problems in this world. Right. Like everybody is going through something, even even all the kids are going through something that he can see a kid physically have an attack and like not be able to control themselves. Like that is worse off than he is, even though she has hot dogs and a mom that lives at home and stuff. So I feel like that gives him a little more perspective too. And with hot dogs, if you feel like Keanu should be in this movie. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we would have seen a similar reaction from Aaron in terms of not being able to know what to do with, with the Captain Iowa character if they had actually gone on that date. The fact that they never get that far, you know, that, that that's, I think, what, what allows him, you know, he wouldn't have known what to do with that either, right? It's just that the, the girl that he's, he's suddenly, he's in her house or, you know, in her apartment and much more on her turf and she's, she's very, she's a little precocious, right? Like she's come and dance with me. Like she's making, she's making all the moves in that relationship. And, and to see him sort of wide-eyed, like, uh, I'm not sure, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this is one of the sort of joys of, of that scene and of, and of this movie. And then, as you say, when she's had the seizure and then comes to, and she, she's like, was it awful or something like that? And he says, you know, you were, you were sick and now you're better. I mean, he just, you're right. He just handles it. Like I, I, I love this kid so much. He, he handles a lot of very delicate situations really well. And what I really like about either this specific point in time in this kid's life or the type of movie that they're making or the type of story that they're telling is that if you twisted this movie just like a little bit and you had either Adrian Brody be like a little bit skeezier or Spalding Gray be a little bit pervier, I can definitely see the type of story where, like, this kid at a young age is kind of forced into this, like, sexual situation with the prostitute. Like, I feel like we're kind of near that, but we're sort of, we're steered toward a path of purity and innocence and just overall, you know, genuine good-heartedness from this kid. Yeah, if he were three years older, it's a whole different movie. It becomes a whole different. He's he's viewed differently from the people around him. He's going to be interacting differently with the people around him, and it's likely going to be a much darker movie. I think you're totally right. Well, how old is he in this? Like ten ish? No, he's just graduated from eighth grade, so he must be. Oh, that's true. So he's fourteen. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe he's a little early, 13? like twelve, thirteen, fourteen, somewhere in there. I would say. Okay. Yeah. If he's lying about what district he lives in, he might be lying about his age, yeah, too. Yeah, so. Yeah. so how old is Adrian Brody in this? Like 18, 19? I took him to be at least 21. Um, okay. He lives on his own. I mean, that's nothing, I guess, at this time. But Well, he's lying about that. He's telling people his mom is not well and she's not in the apartment. And he's a hustler. So, I mean, I never really got to say he didn't. It's weird when you only get one glimpse of his room and it looks like a kid's room to me. It looked, you know, it almost looked like it should have been Aaron's bedroom or something like that. But I, I love that character just because he plays like that hustler really well. You know, he's always just trying to make a buck and he's doing one thing one day, something else the other day. And he takes a shine to the kid, too. He's kind of like this mentor character. And it's really hard for me to articulate why I love him in this movie so much. But he's always an actor that I feel like I should like more than I do. And I mean, he's really good in things. Like, I really like him in Grand Budapest. But 
here, it just, I think it may be just like the overall tone of the movie. Like, it just clicks so well. And he works so nicely in this era and in this story and with the younger kid. And he's this older brother figure. And I just, I was in awe of him in this movie. Like, I, I've never really liked him in much. But here, I was just like, man, like, it's he's great. This is a thing we're going to say over and over again in Soderbergh movies. I've never liked this actor before, but here, they're fantastic. I never thought Jennifer Lopez could act, but now here she is not a sight. come up again and again, and I totally agree. There's something to the, his character. First of all, he's smiling the whole time, genuinely smiling. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, he's a charming, like Adrian Brody seems like a charming fellow. And he can, certainly has that kind of charisma on screen. He seems to be an actor who was maybe a little bit hamstrung in some ways by, you know, winning the Oscar at a relatively unknown point in his career for The Pianist, right? That's what it was called. The Polanski movie where he's surviving the Holocaust or World War II, at least. Like, there's a... That's what that's about? Yeah, yeah. It's a dark... Oh my God, I thought it was just about a piano player. I had no well, idea. He okay. Is that, he is that too, but it is, he is, you know, there's nothing happy about that movie. There's nothing light. And so he then, I think... As an actor, people didn't know quite what to do with him. He seemed like a guy who, you know, would then play these heavy, dramatic roles. And I I personally like him more when he's getting to be charming. And I like him more in things like Grand Budapest. And certainly in this. I mean, he's just... And he's such an appealing character, right? Like, we learn that he's got darkness. It's clear that he's wrestling with darkness of his own. But when he's around the kid, the kid Aaron then brings out something childlike in him, too. I don't know. I, I, I totally agree that there's... There's something special about his performance here. Is it weird that when I think of him, the first thing I think of is Stella Artois? Because <laughs> before any movies I associate with him, him with, I just associate him with those beer commercials, which is bizarre to me. That took me a second to remember. Yeah, I, no, the first thing I think of is him kissing Halle Berry when he runs up to win his Oscar. That's that's my first real impression of him, yeah. I've always been a fan, so I was right there with, uh, it, with you guys, with Adrian Brody in this. I had no idea he was going to be in yeah, it. Yeah. So when he showed up, I was like, okay, this movie just totally went up a notch. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> See where this goes. He can really play period, too. It's one of the things that Soderbergh has fixed from his yep. casting in, in Kafka, <laughs> to my mind, is that all of the characters in this movie feel like they, they lived at the time. And I think that that's, you know, Karen Allen shows up as as um, Aaron's teacher yeah. at school, you know? <laughs> like, right before she goes off, runs off with Indiana Jones, um, here she is at uh, teach, to give birth to school. Shia. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It all comes for <laughs> full circle. But she gives a smile. like, And she's an actress, too, who I'm, I'm a little... Like, I have affection for her because she was... You know, Marion in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I'm I'm not going to seek her out. You know, I think she seems to have sort of you know, the same, maybe some of the same, similar career issues that in terms of finding the right role that uh, that Adrian Brody faced. And, like she gives a smile to Aaron as Aaron is reading that story at the beginning. Uh, sort of opening monologue thing that just melts your heart. I mean, it's just you you dream of teachers staring at you that way. Like not staring at you, but smiling at you that way. Like just so believing in you. And there, there's a lot of that kind of thing that happens in this movie with with actors who you know may not have been as well served by other directors or other parts elsewhere in their career yeah and even some of the people i don't i've recognized the mom but i couldn't place where i knew her from but like the father i don't recognize even if i've seen him before and stuff like that's the thing like him the cop and some of the other 
guys that I weren't aware of, like they all bring it in this film too. You know, I feel like I might be discovering some actors along the way here too as we go through the Soderbergh films as well. You know, not just rediscovering performances or realizing that people can actually act, but I'm going to discover some actors that I may not have actually been aware of at all. So I thought that was pretty cool too. Like this dad his dad is nuts like i i mean it's just like the traveling salesman thing is just like i've seen it recently a lot i feel for some reason i mean maybe just because i watch a lot of movies it just it's been coming up as a thing recently but most of them are selling crap and this guy's actually selling like the goods you know like really nice watches and expensive things and and so you feel like he's gonna make some money with it and stuff but his enthusiasm and his optimism is just incredible at a time like that where you look out the window and across the street from this hotel is one of those like shanty towns of people who've been kicked out so that was uh that was that was good too it's just like the energy that these other that all the actors are bringing to this. We did see that guy in Kafka. I'm not sure that Soderbergh brought other characters from Kafka, but he's this eccentric guy who lets um, oh. lets Kafka into the sort of you know tombstone or the grave. Yeah. Oh, the one his uh, his like his biggest fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If we don't know him enough to sort of put all that together, but uh, yeah, he's and he has this great kind of chilling moment with Aaron in the movie. The moment when he's gotten this job, he's going to go off. And leave Aaron alone. It's the last, as you were saying, the last domino that falls in terms of people leaving Aaron. And there's this great moment where the dad is telling Aaron this story of when when Aaron was a baby and he was crying. And the dad told him that he wanted to he wanted him to be quiet. So he got a glass of water, right? Got, got a glass of cold water, held it over the, this crying baby and said, if you don't stop crying, I'm going to pour this water on you. And the baby didn't stop crying, so he poured the water on him. And then the next day, he said, the next time you were crying, all I had to do was show you the water glass, and you stopped crying. The, the punchline for the dad is like, now that's a smart baby. And his, it's his way of saying, <laughs> you know, you're going to be fine, kid. But what a terrible, terrible thing to do to a baby. Terrible. I mean, it's just like he's doing – okay, he's doing the best he can. And, and he's and he, you're right. He, he's doing it with such sort of you know positivity and uh, you know such optimism and resourcefulness that, that he's going to pass on to Aaron that's good. But also he's like kind of a terrible dad. And I think that, that him being able to be both those things is one of the sort of beauties of the movie is that these characters are allowed to be – fully human that way and they're and they're allowed to be you know in this 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 moment in the movie is played with both Aaron and the dad looking straight into the camera so it's like they're looking right at us as as they're sort of sharing this moment and as i say i found it sort of both sort of chilling and poignant and you know sort of beautiful and awful at the same time in the way that you know maybe it might have felt to Aaron in retrospect that moment really sunk in for me too and I think because of the way it was shot like it was just you know so dead on like that was the impression I was getting plus like that is the moment in the movie where I was like I'm looking this kid up right now like I'm pressing pause and seeing what else this kid has been in because like his face during that moment and the way that it shifts and changes and all the sort of subtle little things that he does are just amazing really just the quality actor in that moment and holds this movie on his shoulders entirely so uh, i was just yeah just to reiterate you know as if it's not clear uh, very good you know who's back for the third movie in a row is cliff martinez doing the score i don't know what this is gonna say about me but i don't normally pay attention to music in movies like the score but when before we did sex lies and i was looking up like the director trademarks 
and elicit the actors, none of whom we've seen. Basically, a lot of the people in the Oceans movies, like Clooney and Julia Roberts and everybody, he'll work with time and again. We haven't seen any of those people yet, but the said that most of his movies are scored by Cliff Martinez, and it's three in a row, and so because of that, I've been paying more attention, and I, I feel like the music works really well here. It kind of, in a weird way, makes the story uplifting in a time where everything is super, super depressing. Like, it's sort of lighter music in a lot of times, or maybe just early on. I'm not sure, but I feel like I was noticing it a lot in here, like I did in the last two movies, and whatever the scene called for, I feel like the music and the score works really well. So I don't know, like, in the Sex Lies diary that I read, and these interviews that I'm reading before each movie that we talk about, people aren't asking him, or he's not really talking about Cliff Martinez that much. Like, you mentioned him a little bit in the diary, but I don't know how closely he works with Soderbergh on these, but it feels to me that, like, he totally gets what these movies are and how to complement them with the scorer. I was trying to pay closer attention to the music in this one as well, and maybe it's just because of the period. I got it in my head that there should be more period music. Like, I I just thought that there would be more music coming from the window or from the radio or, you know, because I would assume all that stuff might even be in public domain at this point, too, or at that point when this movie was being made because it's such old music. So aside from just the absence of all of that the rest of it totally worked for me you know the actual score itself that there isn't a lot more of that period music is fine and i don't feel like the score should have sort of taken its place in that way right like i like that it's a more modern type of music that it didn't try and cater to the you know the look and the time of the movie itself this is still a movie like let's give it something of a more modern influence here with the music and yet it still fits within the context of the emotional peaks and valleys that we need to achieve here and and it just kind of nudges too i never felt like it overwhelmed at any moment either even when things needed to feel profound i don't feel like it was smothering or or anything like that One of the technical elements that I think maybe doesn't work quite as well in this movie as the last two is an element that Soderbergh himself has talked about not being as happy with, which is sort of the look of the film. He's said that he feels like if he were to make it today, he would make it a little grittier. Like it wouldn't be quite so pristine and pretty. Like maybe they were working a little bit over time to try and make the movie look more expensive than it was to make. Uh, And they certainly achieved that. And he did talk about how, you know, this point in the, this is sort of before hopelessness in the depression. This is still, there's still, there's not, it's not cynicism quite yet. Um, right. and, and I think that that's, that's conveyed maybe a little, I, I don't know, I did find it to maybe look a little too pretty for the subject matter and just for what's going on, like a little bit, a little bit of a fantasy quality to it. And maybe it's also in the framing, you know, things are sort of framed particularly beautifully a lot. And this is not my favorite of the three that we've seen so far. And I think a lot of it has to do with that, with, with the fact that maybe it just looks a little too pretty. Did you guys feel that way at all? Well, I think that the way that I'm able to give it the benefit of the doubt there is that it's kind of like a personal depression, not like an emotional depression, but like, you know, the financial depression for this kid that even if the world around him is crumbling, his situation seems so much more dire that maybe by comparison, the rest of the world seems even nicer than it is. 
even like little things like, you know, when he's at the party and all he wants to do is eat that plate of food, then he keeps getting whisked away. Or like later in the movie when he, oh God, the saddest thing maybe I've ever seen ever, yes. when he like cuts out the food out of the magazines and like eats the paper and then that induces the hallucination or whatever, you, like what he just loses his mind for a little bit. Like that's all devastating. And I feel like I'm okay giving it a pass because I'm confident enough in Soderbergh's ability by this point, even by this point, three movies in, as a storyteller, that it's this way for a reason. Even if he's not happy with it, that he would want to change things, I feel like it's a personal story that we're seeing everything through the eyes of this kid, and he's not necessarily a faithful narrator. Uh Uh-huh. We don't really get any sense of why that would be contradicted, but we also get the sense that, like, he doesn't necessarily know what's going on. So we're seeing things through his eyes, and so I'm able to sort of chalk up the the beauty of the movie and sort of the lack of grittiness to that factor. I'm sort of somewhere in the middle there. Like, I mentioned earlier how I did feel like it could have been a bit grittier for me just because of the subject matter, but ultimately that's not the subject of the movie. The depression isn't what this is really about, per se. It's, like, kind of what Joey's steering towards more is that it's about this kid's personal experience through the depression and we're seeing it through his eyes and he may at this age still have some rose-colored glasses on which is why everything feels safe in a way like just in the way that it's shot even it looks gorgeous and that gives a sense of security I feel to the viewer in a way that maybe the kid still has a sense of like he's not aware enough he's not conscious enough to realize how bad things actually are yet um, even though they are that bad And I also maybe feel like it's just a stylistic thing, like, between the time this movie was made and today. I mean, like, today, you could probably get away with telling the same story and doing it more handheld or in black and white or just even just more of a darker sort of technical way of filmmaking, um, like a more grittier way of filmmaking to get that look and style that you want to really bring out the Depression era if you needed. And that just feels more along like the indie line in that Soderbergh here is trying to produce something more along the lines of the mainstream, something that maybe the entire family could go see and something that the studio may feel more safe promoting or just feel like this is something that is more accessible shot this way that a mass audience will watch it and say, well, at least it's a very beautiful looking movie, even if parts of it were extremely depressing. Yeah, that's so smart. And that, I think, gets to my bottom line issue with this is that it makes it feel safe. It makes the, it feel a little, a little too safe, I think. I don't think it should have been, you know, like a dark brooding thing. But I think the corners could have been, been a little less shiny. It could have been a little less pristine. And I might have worried, even worried a little bit more for the, for the character. But you're right. You, you get something out of it being nostalgia. It's this person's looking back at his own past and seeing it sort of as he saw it then and i don't really totally fault it but i think it doesn't it doesn't fully work for me the fact that he calls himself on it is something too right and that he knows it maybe wasn't the best decision but it was one that was made and he lives with it and maybe that's why i haven't really heard too much about this film before deciding to do all this is because like he doesn't really hold it in such high regard it doesn't really talk about it it doesn't refer back to it when he's talking about his films perhaps it feels to me like it has less of his stamp on it this feels a little more like sections of this movie that could have been made by somebody else and i certainly never felt that in the previous two movies and i'm not going to feel that in a lot of his best work and I'm not saying it's generic. There's always a point of view. And there are moments that are great. Like we've talked about the, the scene between the, the Aaron and his dad, the scene 
Um, Joey, you mentioned where he where he cuts up the magazine pictures of the food. And then after that has that hallucination. There are things that are very Soderbergh in this movie. And all of the Spalding Gray stuff, all of the all of those scenes. But I, I just to me that it's um it feels a little bit less less Soderbergh to me. And I, I like him so much I'd rather see a little more of him in his movies. Well what is very Soderbergh is the special feature that's on the Blu-ray. And this is like Watching this 10-minute video makes me wish I had time or the desire to watch more of these behind-the-scenes things, especially when they're as well done as this one. But Mike pointed out on the Blu-ray, there's this thing called Against Tyranny, which is this video essay by this guy, Koganata. And it's this, like, I don't even know how to describe (laughs) what it is, but he's breaking down how you tell a story in a scene through cuts and then talking about how that like Soderbergh is very traditional in this way in this film, and then we get to the hallucination scene, and things get real weird. But then, like, he really breaks your mind by like going back to that first scene where Aaron is telling the Charles Lindbergh story, and we see that the kid Billy, I think, is wearing two different outfits. Like, it's two different scenes in that scene, and knowing that Soderbergh is so meticulous and is the one editing this. It kind of broke my brain, the fact that, like, he's intentionally fucking with us. Like, I don't, I don't know. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, and, and it would be, so, so what we're seeing at the beginning is that the very first cut of the movie seems to be sort of a, a chronological linear cut. We're cutting from Aaron telling the story to this kid listening. And then you discover that that shot of that kid, he's wearing an outfit he's wearing at the end of the movie. And so the argument of this essay is that, Perhaps in the first cut, Soderbergh is making a sort of nonlinear cut in the very first cut of the movie, just that we don't know it yet. And then when he gets to the end of the movie and he has the the kid has the hallucination and you get all these wonderful cuts that are associative cuts rather than, than linear cuts, meaning that like we see Adrian Brody handing Aaron the, this pen knife that he gives him, this pocket knife he gives him as he's being taken away as sort of a parting gift. And then it cuts from the, the image of that pocket knife being handed over to the image of the marble going back and forth between Aaron and his brother's hands. And so you end up with these these sort of associative cuts that, that draw, that sort of get your brain to stretch in new ways that then also get to Aaron's sort of emotional and psychological feeling at that at that moment, and it's a this is a wonder. I'm so glad that Mike suggested that we see this because it, it would be different if Soderbergh did not go on to make a, other movies that relied very very heavily on non-linear editing, discontinuity editing. He's going to do that in in all kinds of movies, mainstream movies, and and especially his more avant-garde work, uh, his more experimental work. And the fact that he's doing it here and doing it in the first cut, you know, the first literal first edit in the movie, if it was anybody else, I would think, oh, that was just a mistake. They just needed that shot of that kid. But here, no, they, I don't, I, I buy it. I buy that there's something to this, that he's, that he's, that he's smart enough and aware enough and sort of uh, choking under the yoke of, as this, as this essay suggests, sort of the tyranny of straight narrative that he's got to start messing with us really early on. I thought this was a, a great piece. The piece even brings it up, like, maybe he just needed that shot from that angle, but, you know, maybe, but I don't think so. Like, I definitely agree. Like, he is testing his abilities here, and he's testing the audience, and he's creating, like, this subconscious effect, right, without even realizing it. Like, because of that one cut, um, who knows what else we've been susceptible to throughout the rest of this film. Like, it makes you almost want to go through it with a fine-tooth comb at some point and see where else he's been messing with you. Yeah, it's just really great, and it just proves that he's got 
such a great understanding of film language and that he's able to do something like this and disguise it right in front of your eyes you know like it's hidden in plain sight I didn't catch it I watched this and my mind was blown as well it took a half hour to scoop my brain up <laughs> off the floor and so yeah I'm glad you guys checked it out and you know it just felt completely appropriate to do a video essay like this in regards to Soderbergh too because he'll be experimental but it's like he experiments without you even realize it like he's just fearless well so that guy koganada has like dozens of video essays on his vimeo channel and so i kind of want to go in there and just like sort of break my brain again but like what i really like about this director's thing that we're doing which i wasn't really fully aware of when we started when we were planning this is it's so, so different, even though it's similar in a way, but it's so different from following an actor because even an actor who, like Cage, on a film like Trapped in Paradise where he becomes the director, kind of, or like he directs Sonny or whatever, he's, at the end of the day, just a piece of the puzzle, and he's going to bring his own things to the role, but so little of the final product is really left up to him. Here, especially with Soderbergh, who traditionally writes and directs and edits his movies, we're really seeing an evolution of one person in sort of like in what he wants to do as a whole. And not just, you know, an acting role, but like putting everything together in a single thing. And so to see him here really just messing with us for any number of reasons, it's just, it's fascinating. Yeah, it makes me very excited to listen to the other podcasts you guys are going to do about other other directors because it, it seems to me that not to tip my hand to knowing sort of what's coming but that you're you're going to be discussing a lot of directors who who do a similar kind of thing in terms of have their own point of view and have a real specific style and a, and a specific sort of stamp they put on their movies that sort of you can watch emerge over time or in Soderbergh's case sort of emerge full-blown and then just continue to reveal itself or deepen over time. But it is neat to see that that special feature made me like this movie better. And that's that does not always happen yeah. with, with special features. It made me appreciate it more. You know, like I like this movie. I like Soderbergh. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this movie again someday. I don't love it the way I love some of his other work, but boy, seeing that, seeing that he is playing some of the same, you know, psycho-intellectual games with us through through cutting in this movie, you know, makes me appreciate it even more. Well and that's what our original goal with like when because Mike and I put together a list of probably 40 or 50 directors that we let the handful of guests who are going to be on these podcasts pick from. And really, we wanted to try to pick people who, like, we're, everybody's modern. Like, we try to keep sort of like 1990-ish as the cutoff, just because it's most interesting, I think, to sort of compare people of a similar era. Because you could compare, like, Soderbergh to Hitchcock or Soderbergh to Kubrick or whatever, but it's it's they're so different. Like, they're working at such different times that to keep it all to a singular era, I think, is most interesting. And the other thing is that I wanted to try to, and I think Mike, well, I don't know that we ever really articulated this when putting the list together, but I think that most of what we did were put together directors who pretty much either write their own movies or write most of their own movies, or at the very least, if they're not writing their own movies, they have a particular reasoning for why they're directing the projects they are. And it's not like they're just like a director for hire. Like, I'm sure that at some point, you know, maybe even Soderbergh, I don't know, I don't know what we get down the road, that maybe he just like gets pulled into a project that he isn't necessarily closely affiliated with. But I think it's really interesting to see the type of directors like Soderbergh or in a similar way, somebody we're not doing for this first run, like Quentin Tarantino, who writes and directs all of his stuff. You really get a sense of like 
comparing and seeing them grow and evolve and like what they use and like where they start things like this you know non-linear editing that's going to pay off down the road and it's just it's exciting that it's a different way of watching movies like this that i don't normally do and i don't think most people normally do so i'm excited to keep going with this and see where this takes us yeah, me too. Everything you just said, I'll say. But yeah, my sentiments exactly. You know, I mean, just uh, quickly, I, I will say, yeah, it, it's good to get the scope of the director, like his entire point of view. I feel like with those Cage and Keanu things, like we're focusing on acting first and foremost, and a single actor at that, and then maybe you know we'll talk about the rest of the movie. But here it's great because we can jump around from everything, from the editing to the cinematography to the music to the writing, you know, to the acting like everything we get to cover it all there's much i feel like there's just there's more to talk about and the conversations can get better and deeper quicker (laughs) at times and so yeah i'm very excited about everything coming up What's going to be interesting is the next thing we're doing is not a feature-length film. It's a half-hour thing called The Quiet Room, which is one of six short films in this Fallen Angels series that I think Showtime put out. It's going to be different for a couple reasons. Number one, it's not a feature-length film. It's a short film. I don't know who wrote it. I didn't get that far in. But I was reading in the interview that I read for this film, for King of the Hill, that Soderbergh was not the editor on The Quiet Room. So it's going to be interesting a little bit to see, because he talks about how, because the guy's like, well, what are you doing next? He's like, I'm doing this thing. But he would talk about how, like, when he's shooting scenes, he has a sense, and this is, again, why I think it's proof that he's not just, he's not accidentally taking a scene from later in the movie and putting it in because he needs a shot. Because he's, he's filming, he's directing, and he's, you know, capturing this this footage on film in a way that he knows how it's going to be edited. And so he's talking about how, like, he's shooting a dialogue scene and knows where the cuts, knows how he's going to link three things together. And then this guy who's editing it, at least the first time, wasn't picking up on, like, what his vision was. So that shows that, like, it's a guy who knows exactly what he's doing and the final product that he wants to put out. But it's going to be interesting when, because I don't think he probably doesn't edit everything he does. I know he edits probably a lot of it or most of it, but there's going to be things, especially as he gets busier, because it seems like he's doing two or three things at this time, and Showtime's like, oh, we're just going to hire an editor for you. So it's going to be interesting to see if it feels, and it probably will, but if it feels as much like a Soderbergh thing as these first three movies have, because he's not as hands-on in the actual editing, which I feel is really where he kind of separates himself from a lot of other directors. Yeah, I think there was something in the behind the scenes in this where he said close to the release of this movie, he went back in and did another cut and removed a whole bunch of scenes and thought that it would be better. And I haven't watched the deleted scenes, but they're on the disc. And he said that he feels like maybe that wasn't such a good idea and that he was too close to it and that next time he won't edit his own work. So it's interesting that that happens immediately. The very next thing he's doing, he isn't editing. And from time to time, I suppose that'll happen. Like maybe it'll just get to a point where he's cut like three or four movies in a row and then it's just either fatigue or I'm too close to this project and I'm not thinking clear enough and, you know, making cuts that maybe aren't necessary. It could be a good thing going forward or it could be one of the things where he realizes uh, perhaps that is I want that control of the final cut after all. I'm looking forward to finding out. I think he cut out like 25 or 35 minutes. Like the first cut of this movie was like two hours and 10 minutes or something. And he cut out like a significant chunk. And I I don't know if that's part of like what you said, like he kind of regrets making some edits or whatever, but that's like a quarter of the movie to cut out. That's a lot. 
Yeah, yeah, that could be, you know, a subplot, like an entire one. There could have been He goes on that date with Catherine Heigl and Adrian Brody <laughs> shows up in hijinks and Sue. I love when he's graduating and everybody has their family standing there clapping. Oh, for them. yeah. He gets up. He's looking around and Adrian Brody's in the back and he gives that whistle and he starts clapping and the whole yeah. Around. Oh, so man. Great. That made me so happy because his parents aren't there. He thinks he's going to be all alone that no one's going to clap for him. And that's such a depressing thing. And then, like, Adrian Brody's so kind of obnoxious about it that, like, everybody turns to look at him. It's just the best moment. Tobin, any last thoughts about King of the Hill? Yeah, no, not really. I Like I say, I, I enjoyed this movie. I'll watch it again. It's not one of my favorites of his. I probably would rather watch either of the other two again before I... In fact, I know I will watch the other two at some point before I watch this again. But I may watch that that essay, the video essay. I may watch that again. This is a good movie. I would call this a good movie. It's really neat to see it in his... In, in order here to sort of see it in chronological order where it comes in his career and I think people should see it I don't love it the way I love some of them but I, I enjoyed seeing it again Mike any last thoughts about King of the Hill? I liked it as well. It is not my favorite so far either. I think they pretty much go in order. I like him one, two, three in the way we've seen him. But it is not a bad movie whatsoever. Like, that's the thing. I just feel like he set his own bar so damn high that he's going to spend some of his career trying to re-reach it or realign that. But it's still good, and I do recommend it. This, to me, felt like a big test of his own. Like, I'm going to test myself, see, can I work with kids? Can I do a period film? Can I adapt a book? Uh, Not only a book but like a memoir which you know i just they just seem like they would be more difficult just like moments and events in someone's life and like it's a reality it's not like a fiction you know so yeah it just felt like he was really testing himself here to see if he's strong enough to do something like this and he was able to pull this off largely mostly uh the other thing i was thinking is that we get our first look at spalding gray who's gonna come back a lot like i feel like he and soderbergh have forged some kind of friendship maybe it started here i don't know much about the guy i've seen swimming to cambodia which is just like a one-man show about partially about the making of the killing fields a movie he was in but also just these just a random he just pontificates on and on about like crazy things so it'll be interesting to see where he winds up throughout the rest of the soderbergh stuff that we're doing and you know more about him than I do, because all I know about him is the parody that they did on Documentary Now. So, I mean, that's like a step removed from any sense of reality. So, more Spalding Gray to come. Well, for all things Cinemakers, which there isn't a lot yet. There's the three episodes so far, but there's plenty more to come. And all other things on the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or twitter.com slash cageclubpod. You can see all the episodes that we've done so far. Lots of other fun, free things for you to read and post about and tweet about and all sorts of fun social media e-things. So go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub or twitter.com slash cageclubpod. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Simulators.